What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hi, everyone. I hope you're all well. I'm going to be talking today to an extraordinary man. He's a friend and one of the most prolific producers of theatre on Broadway. He's also a writer and he's worked in television and he's run a Hollywood studio. His list of what he's done is amazing. His name is Julian Schlossberg. And I think you'll enjoy meeting him. He's a lovely man. Julian, hello. Oh, hello, Twigs. Oh. How nice to see you. You look so close and yet you're so far away. Yes. So far away. Doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore? Yeah, it's true. What's it like in New York at the moment? Cloudy and grey, but only grey for a day. <laughs> yeah, because I read last week it was like 90 degrees. Is that true? It's true, yeah. That's it's uh, They tell us there's no global warming. <laughs> you, have you got your cup of tea to have tea with me? I do, I do. Of course, it's a little watery, but it's, it's <laughs> fine. Do you drink tea? You're married to a beautiful no. English woman. You do oh, she, drink, she drinks tea. I bet she does. I know she She's does. She's definitely a teetotaler. <laughs> and you haven't, after all these years, been converted to tea? Yes, not at all. Oh. No. All I drink is water. Yeah, actually, like Lee. He likes green tea, actually. Oh, yeah. And uh, we have in New York egg creams. Did you ever hear of an egg What's cream? That? No. Egg cream is a is chocolate uh, syrup, yeah. a little milk, and seltzer water. Oh and my goodness! It, it's so good. <laughs> I've never. What's it called? Egg cream. An egg cream. It has never. nothing to do with egg, but at the top, when it when they put it together and you mix it, the bubbles come oh, up. Oh, it froths. That's hysterical. Yes. Froth. Froth. Very good. Froth. Well, it's been a few years since we've seen you because of blasted COVID. Yes, it's true. COVID has really been a drag. I even stopped producing and started writing because I had to do something. I, I was going to ask you, I, I ask everyone I talk to, you know, how they got through the horribleness of the last three. Although it's, it's, it's getting much better here. Is it better there? Yes, it is. But, you know, what I'm concerned about here mm -hmm. is that even in crowds, people are not wearing masks at all. Mm. And I, I think that, that's a dangerous thing. Uh, thank goodness we got through the winter. And yeah. I, I bet we're going to find out that by wearing masks, the flu went down, I bet, this past winter. I'll bet on that. Well, it, it did until, as you say, people stopped wearing masks. That's right. Because I can re I can remember going to Japan in 1967, 68, 
And I thought it was hysterical because when we went on their amazing underground and their trains, everyone was wearing masks. Yes. And we thought, oh, how stupid. This is mad. How brilliant were they? They were. And I think it should be, you should be have to wear a mask on the underground. I, I think you're right. <laughs> you're right. I, it's true. I do. I still do. If we go on the underground, I still put a mask on. When I went to Japan for the World's Fair, uh-huh. I, I found lots of people wearing masks. And it, it, was, uh, it was not as jarring as you might think, I guess, because I knew how, I guess, how advanced the Japanese and the Chinese are in so many ways. After all, Chinese with acupuncture is thousands of years That's old. Right. And how, you know, and they were wearing the mask, not because of COVID, but just so they didn't pick up flu germs or cold germs or cough germs. It's just so intelligent. I mean, anyway, I think that's what I think we should bring back the mask. (laughs) Absolutely. I knew you were born in New York City. I don't think I knew you were born in the Bronx. I found that out in your biog. So tell me about that. I don't think I've met anyone who was born in the Bronx. Well, yeah, a lot of people have been, uh, in, including Colin Powell. <laughs> I found that out. Um, and Alan Alder, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people. But what I was going to say was that I was technically born in Manhattan, the actual birth, but I grew up oh, okay. and born and bred in the Bronx. And yeah, being in the Bronx was interesting, Twigs. The, the largest armory in the world... I lived across the street from. It was called the Kingsbridge Armory. And and motorboat shows were there, uh, uh, car shows. I mean, it was the place for giant places to kind of uh, have conventions. And I, as a kid, went to a rodeo in the armory. A rodeo with horses? With horses, bucking (laughs) broncos. They were bucking broncos. (laughs) They were tying up heifers. It was amazing. That's amazing. And and what happened was, you know, in those days, as you may recall, I'm sure in England as well, there were local stores. There weren't giant supermarkets. And so there was a delicatessen and a barber and uh, whatever, a tailor shop. And they got two free tickets to opening night uh, or opening day of the armory. I'm a little kid, eight or nine years old, and I would go around asking them, you have any tickets for opening day? And they'd all give it to me. In fact, after a while, they saved them for me. (laughs) And then being a bit of an entrepreneur at eight or nine years old, I sold them outside the (laughs) office. Oh, it began at eight years old. That's why you're such a brilliant producer. <laughs> That's hysterical. And, and I, I gave them a dollar off. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So I always be, I, I don't think I've ever been to the Bronx, but isn't it quite a tough neighborhood or is that just parts of it? Well, uh, it's it's gotten tougher and tougher. When I lived there, there were a lot of street gangs. There, there were... There were the Iris Angels. There were the Fordham Baldies. Wow. There were the Fordham Daggers. These were, were tough kids. I clearly did not enhance the toughness of the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> it was, wasn't my strong suit, Terrence. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's um, lots of things have changed as, I, I, all over the world, but particularly in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, most of the boroughs uh, were pretty 
uh, a Caucasian and middle class, and now there's an enormous amount of people from all over the world living there, as opposed to Manhattan, where the prices are so crazy. So, you know, it's like you guys having Hounslow to London, you yeah, know. It's, well, it, but it's happened in London. I mean, London prices are astronomical. They, I mean, they always have been, and we thought with COVID it might knock them down, but it hasn't. London, no. you know. And so what's happening now, which I'm sure is happening out of New York, is younger people are having to move to the suburbs and further out because the centre of London is so expensive. Well, you know, you bring up the Bronx and you remind me of a story that I tell in the book where uh, I lived near an elevated train station. Uh-huh. I was around 10 years old now. Now I'm getting older from the, the armory. <laughs> And I'm walking by and I see underneath the L a newspaper stand that's deserted. It, it's no, no one's in there, but it's open. There's no lock or anything. But I see near it is a huge stack of papers, big, thick papers. And I'm with my friend Walter. And I say, Walter, go to the locksmith, get, get a lock, buy a lock. He said, why? I said, well, we're going to take this stand over. He said, you're kidding <laughs> He said, well, if I'm going to go there, I better get a wire cutter because we got to sell papers. So he went, <laughs> he picked up a lock, a wire cutter. We cut open the papers and we sold them. We sold them. Uh, and in the afternoon, believe it or not, a truck comes by and drops another load. This time the New York Post, that the Daily News was the in the yeah. morning. And so we cut that open and we open up our stand. And that goes on the second day and the third day, and we're doing great. I mean, <laughs> and then and then the word was out. <laughs> Don't drop any more papers to these people. <laughs> but it was one hell of a three day at the uh, newspaper stand. Brilliant. Well, that, so, that obviously, you know, paved the way to you being a brilliant businessman. <laughs> And a producer. Well, I, 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 I'm telling you, if I walk by today, a newspaper stand deserted, I jump in again, Twig. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> what the hell do I care? It's only 70 some odd years later. I know. Did you, Were your mum and dad involved in the, the no. theatrical film, TV no. world? No, not at all. My father loved show business, though. Uh-huh. So did, he take, father, did they take you to shows? I mean, yes, yes, yes. Is that I where mean, you uh, got the bug? Oh, I got the bug. I had it, but I had it very young. Um, I The New York Times published on Sunday the highlights of the week of, of what the channels were playing. And now, unlike England, we had in New York 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. Even at the beginning of television, there were seven channels. Oh my and goodness! I would take the Sunday Times, and I'm not, I'm now a kid. I mean, I'm very young, and I would put down how many shows were listed as highlights for Channel Two, Channel Five, Channel Nine, whatever. I mean, that's a pretty strange way to spend a Sunday. It's, <laughs> and, and and the thing I couldn't understand as a nine, ten year old was that they said TBA next to a lot of shows. And I kept thinking, what is TBA? What kind of a show is that? Until I realized years later, it meant to be announced. That's right. <laughs> That's so brilliant. So, so, but so you, I know you, you, you went into the army for a little bit, didn't you? 
I did. Yeah, I did. I was uh, told I was a trained killer. I oh. was told. I mean, but I, you're this. You're like a pussy cat. Uh, yeah, I should have said <laughs> trained pussy cat. That's what we should have said. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that I was in the army, but I typed a hundred words a minute. I really could type. Oh my goodness! And, and I had a, a sergeant named Portier, an African American, who claimed to be a relative of Sidney Portier. None of <laughs> us, none of us believed it, but. I went in after there's eight weeks of, of, of basic training in, in, in New York. I mean, uh -huh. in America and eight weeks. It's, uh, it's now July. The sun is 94 degrees. You're wearing a steel pot hat. <laughs> You're carrying a gigantic knapsack. You've got an M1 rifle oh and God. you've got boots on with long sleeves everywhere. And the perspiration, I'm sweating like a dog. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do eight weeks of this. I just can't. <laughs> so I go into the first Sergeant Portier and I say, Sergeant Portier, I type 100 words a minute. He says, what? You sit down here. Let me see you type. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like Van Cliburn on the keys. You know, I'm going away, <laughs> banging away. He says, okay, you come out. You're going to be my clerk. And that's how I got out of, of, of it. Amazing. But I have to say, darling, that I went back and when the other guys in the barracks found out that I was out, I was no longer going to be doing what they were doing in a very mature fashion. They stripped my bed, threw the mattress in the latrine, did everything. <laughs> and so I I said to Sergeant Porty, I'm having a little trouble with these guys in the barracks. He said, well, let me, let me talk. I'll kill them. I'll, they'll wish they weren't born. I said, well, no. Can I be in charge of weekend passes? He said, sure. I don't give a damn. If they give you any trouble, I said, oh, no. I, if I get in charge of weekend passes, they're not going to give me any trouble. That's they true. Made, they twigs. They made my bed. They shined my boots. <laughs> they That's cleaned my belt. That's And brutal. I gave them their passes. So, you know, you have to look for a way all the time. And yeah. I guess... In speaking to you for the first time, I realized I was preparing to be a producer. <laughs> but it's true because, you know, by doing that, you learn how you can work with people. And I always think that if I, I personally think if you're kind and nice to people, that will come back to you most of the time. In my yes. over 50 years of working in the business, that's mainly worked. There's been one or two at the most that it hasn't worked with. I think if you, if you give out, you know, fairness and kindness, it, it, people give it back to you, don't you think? I do. I think you're absolutely right. And you've, you've got a wonderful reputation as, as being a very kind, very clever producer. That kindness could kill me in the business. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're tough. But well, I, I, I can be, a, but I couldn't. I couldn't with you and Lee. I, I folded like a cheap camera. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I have to explain to our listeners that the reason that I know Julian so well is he very, very kindly stepped in to help us and became our producer for a show we did off Broadway, right? Called If Love Were All. Oh, yes, it was a wonderful show and. One of the many things that I admire about you, Twiggy, and it's really true, most people who have had the prominence you've had and seen 
uh, have are damaged. They're, they've been rejected. They've been lied to. They've really been treated badly. And so while I'm not an apologist for actors and their ego, uh, I do recognize what they've been through. And one of the things I, one of the many things I admire about you is the fact that you are kind. You never, and there wasn't one time in all the time we worked together, and it was months and months, mm. that you pulled one of those things that I'm afraid I've had pulled on me. And uh, so the fact that I love you is, and Lee knows it, is okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, thank you very much. But, you know, we have a lot to thank you for because it was because of you that we got our show on. It, it Just to explain, it, it was a show based on the life of Noel Coward and Gertrude Lawrence, and I played Gertrude Lawrence, obviously, and the wonderful Harry Groner played brilliantly Noel Coward, didn't he? And we, we did it for about five months off Broadway, didn't we? And, and, and do you remember lovely Rabbi Mark Golab, right? Is it, am I pronouncing yes, it properly? Uh, Golab, Golab. Golab. Yes, sadly, just recently passed away. Oh, that makes me so. I didn't know that. No, but that's no. such a sweet story. I'm, I'm right in saying that he came to you and he wanted, he loved the theatre, correct? Tell the story of how he got involved because well, it's know, so sweet. I, I, well, it was kind of interesting. They were, that he, uh, he came, we, I had been on, I had my own radio show that's for right. nine years on New York and he was part of the radio station because he did a religious show on, on Judaism. So he kind of became interested in what I did because I was bringing in, you know, Bob Hope and Rex Harrison. I mean, it was really amazing who, who I could get to sit down by, by, by groveling and begging, you know, but I got them, you know. And he, he came to me and said, I, I, I'd like to learn to produce. Uh, how can I do that? I said, well, if you can come in and give me uh, some money towards this play I'm doing, I'll teach you the business and I'll have you come to advertising meetings and, and I'll explain to you how I give notes and what I do. And, and so he did. He, oh, he did. He was brilliant. I remember he used to bless the stage. Do you remember? He used to come in before we did a performance. He used to come yeah. in and bless the, stage. bless the stage. I asked him to bless me, but he wouldn't do that. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. From your book and from a little bit of research, you've worked with such unbelievable, I mean, from Mike Nichols to Elaine May to Woody Allen to Alan Bay, I mean, Frank Langella, unbelievable people. I mean, how did you get into that position to be able to, I know you did your radio shows and you you did it, didn't you do them as TV specials as well? Yeah, I, I produced TV specials and I had my own TV show on a cable system uh-huh. uh, called Go, and I was on for about eight or ten shows and then they closed. And oh, there, are those, <laughs> there are those who think I closed Wometco. <laughs> <laughs> but but I did- deny it. I Is, deny it. Then you were, then you were at Paramount. You were, you were a big noise at Paramount yeah. Pictures, weren't you? 
Weren't you like the head guy? Well, no. The head guy can say yes. All I could say was no, and I'll get back to you. I'll get back. <laughs> oh, I've heard that before. I'll get back That's to you. Right. You know, and the fact that I would tell people in our business, I was a vice president of production of Paramount. Okay, that's pre- pretty that pretty was, high up, though. It, it was. They every time I tried to quit because I wanted to leave and I had a contract, they kept saying, "You're the third highest paid person here." I said, <laughs> "Make me make me the fifth highest paid, and let me say yes to one movie, just one movie." No, no, gotta gotta go through the ranks. So. It was the two worst years of my life uh, working there. Uh, I worked with a wonderfully intelligent man named Barry Diller, who's quite successful, who ran two studios, started the Fox Network, which of which I'm angry about. But anyhow. (laughs) Yeah, he he was one of our producers on My One and Only, the show I did with Tommy in 83. Because Paramount were our producers. That's right, exactly. So I love Barry Diller because <laughs> he, he got our so show I, on. <laughs> yeah, and he was a chairman of Paramount at the time. And I said to him, look, I, I, I just want to leave. There's a year left of my contract, a two-year contract. A year left my Why don't you just let me out of it? And he said, no, no, I want you to stay. I'm going to convince you that this is the place for you. He said, well, what are you so unhappy about? I said, I'm diametrically opposed to everything you do here. And he said, diametrically? (laughs) (laughs) And then we broke broke up laughing. Oh, that's very funny. (laughs) And so then you you went back to New York, yeah? No, I never left uh, 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 New York. Uh, uh, My negotiation was they they wanted me to move to L.A. Actually, for like Andy Warhol said about 15 minutes of fame, uh, for about 15 minutes of fame in the movie business, Every studio or almost one wanted me to work for them. The reason being that I had taken a theater uh, called the Ziegfeld. Oh, yeah. Was at that time a white elephant. You couldn't you couldn't get a picture. Nobody wanted to book it, etc. And I made it the highest grossing theater in the United States. Wow. City musical. I put in in a row. That's entertainment, earthquake and Tommy. We averaged $60,000 a week, over $3 million for the year. It looked like I knew what I was doing. And every every studio, try, or almost every studio but one, tried to hire me. But they all wanted me to move to L.A., and I don't like L.A. Uh, I like the weather. But, I, you know, there was a great comic in America named Fred Allen. Oh, and yes. he said, Los Angeles is a great place to live if you're an orange. <laughs> Did he say that? That's brilliant. <laughs> so Diller being Diller being probably the smartest executive I ever met or ever encountered said, I'll tell you what, how about two weeks in New York and two weeks in L.A.? I said, I'll tell you what, three weeks in New York and one week in L.A. and you got a deal. And he said, okay. And so that's, that's, did you fly back and forth every three yeah, weeks? Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah. It was a Greg, and I really don't, I don't like L.A. I, I used to say about L.A., I'm writing a second book, Twigs. Oh, and good. In it, in it, I have a chapter called The City of Angels about L.A., but I end the chapter by saying Los Angeles is the only city in the world that if you bring up the works of Milton, they say, Burl? <laughs> so it's not my town, not my kind but of town. But congratulations on the first book. It came out, what, a couple of months ago? 
January 31st, and we sold out the first edition in two is, days. It's called Try Not to Hold It Against Me. Great title. Oh, yes, it's yes. It's brilliant. Everyone should get a copy. It's really great fun and great stories and great insights to the business, really. Well, thank you. I try, I try to do a, a thing of entertaining but also educating. Yeah, absolutely. If wanted to learn the business, I try to go over it. And I think uh, – so the reviews say I succeeded. So uh, I think you have. I think you have. <laughs> it did encourage me to write a second book. That I will say. Well, that's brilliant news. I can't wait for it to come. You work with some very famous people who were kind of known to be a bit difficult to work with, and you seem to always get on with them. Like Elia, is it Elia Kazan? You pronounce it's it? It's actually pronounced. It's always pronounced incorrectly. It's Elia. Elia, Elia, Kazan, the brilliant Brit. He did on the waterfront, right? Directed yes, that. He, he and won the Academy Award for on the waterfront and Gentleman's Agreement in movies, but in theater, he was the first director of. He had not. He directed Death of a Salesman, the original. Wow. He directed. He directed uh, uh, All My Sons. He directed Streetcar Named Desire. I mean, he was at his time the most important director in the world. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure. Yeah. And and w was he difficult or was that just something that grew up around him? Well, the difficulty for him was that uh, he, during the McCarthy period, where America was running scared about communists, oh, yeah. he, he, along with a, a lot of other famous people, named names. They said who was, who was a communist. Oh. And so it became controversial that way. But Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro uh, pushed to have him get an Academy Award, a special lifetime achievement, and he got it anyhow, despite that. So was he difficult? No, he was very strong. He was very smart. And any meeting I had with him, you would leave that meeting with ideas. You were intoxicated with his brilliance and his suggestions and his ideas. It was like taking, I guess, I never took drugs, but I gather it was like <laughs> In a drug, and then of uh, course you didn't have to worry about coming down. You just came flying out of that office. But it was interesting, Twigs. Um, I was a kid. I was 24 years old. I mean, to show you what kind of a life I must have been having on a weekend, I looked up in the Manhattan telephone book Kazan's name. I mean, why I'm doing that? In the, I mean, but I'm the same kid who was same kid who was doing Channel Two, Channel Five. Yeah. So, I kind of going along. And I see his name. He's got a telephone number and an address. And I can't believe it. Uh, and I, I see the address is 1545 Broadway. And I decide on Monday morning, I'm going to go over and try to see him. So I go over and his office is behind the Victoria Theater on 46th and Broadway. And I go in and there's no Kazan on the directory. I don't see his name. So I wait outside. And around 5, 5.30, he comes out. And he's a, a short, shorter man. I'm six feet. He's about, I guess, five, six, five, seven. Walks very fast. And I start following him. <laughs> and I follow him all the way up the west side, he, 68th Street, where he lives. So he walks a mile every day to get home. But I'm too afraid to talk to him. Second day, same scenario. On the third day, we hit 49th and Broadway. And he twirls around and says, who are you? What do you want? And why are you following me? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I say in my best English, he says, calm down, calm down. I want you, I want you to come with me. I want to know who you are, what are you doing? We're going to go back to my office. So we start walking back, and as we're walking back, he's describing a car that goes by a store. I mean, he's like the narrator of this walk. I'm on a tour with Kazan, and I'm so excited. So we go up to his office. It's a small two-room office, one for a secretary, and he takes me into his office, and he lies across the couch like a cat, just lies across the I'm sitting in a chair. He says, okay, who are you and what do you want? I said, I want to work with you. I want to be around you. I want to learn from you. I don't want any money. I just want to be blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he says, calm down. He says, there's a lot of actors who are willing to do that. I said, I'm not an actor. He said, well, who the hell are you? <laughs> By that time, I had worked at the ABC network, one of the major three networks of, of America at that time. And I was working for Walter Reed in the theater division, buying movies for theaters. And he said to me, do you... Uh, you ever hear of a movie called A Face in the Crowd? I said, oh, well, Andy Griffith, Carol Baker? Uh, yes, uh, yes. He says, look, I know who's in it. I made it. He said, how about Baby Doll? I start to say Carl Malden. <laughs> he says, look, I'm getting those two movies back. I'm going to own them. And would you like to handle them? You think you could do something with them? Absolutely, I screamed, having one or, or two ideas at best. And it's incredible. He gave me those two movies for the world. Wow. And we never had a contract. He wow. just gave me his handshake. And then a couple of years later, he got back America, America. And he gave me that. And so it was an incredible uh, relationship. And <clears throat> Twigs, as you know, in the business, the fact that Kazan was letting me represent him was my ticket to other people. Of course. Because they thought, well, if, if Kazan's given it to him, we ought to give it to him. And that's what ended up happening. So I built, after I left Paramount, I opened a company called Castle Hill Productions. And um, I built it up to have a, a library of 500 movies, uh, one of the largest libraries in the world. Wow. So it was all started with Kazan. And I write about it, as you know, in the book. So... Um, I guess that's that. Amazing. Getting back to Paramount, just to give you an example of of, of um, what happened, the guy who they brought in to be under Barry uh, as president, because Barry was now chairman, was named Michael Eisner, and he became years later the head of Disney. That's right. But he, but Barry said, "You've got to go in, and you've got to tell Michael, uh, you know, what why you're so unhappy here." So I. I said, sure, I'll tell him. I, I, so I went in, and he said, well, I don't understand, Michael said. You, you, you get a lot of money. You've got prestige. You can go all over the world. Why do you want to leave? I said, because I'm unhappy. And he said, what is it, Fox? Is it Columbia? <laughs> <laughs> he thought you were being poached. Yes, and, and I think, more importantly, the concept of happy did not even exist. <laughs> no. What do you mean you're happy? Who's happy? I'm not happy, you know, whatever it might be. But I was, I was unhappy, and but I had to stay to the very last day. But because of that, it gave me time to organize my new company, and I opened it. And the name Schlossberg 
in German, Schloss is a castle, mm-hmm. and Berg is really not B-U-R-G, which is a city, but B-E-R-G is a hill or a mountain. Mountain, yeah. And so someone said to me, why don't you call it Castle Mountain? And I said, first of all, I'm starting a new company. I'll start with the hill. (laughs) And I said, and second of all, you know, Paramount has their logo. It's a mountain. All I need is to get a lawsuit because I'm using their mountain. Well, you probably would have done. (laughs) More than possibly, yeah. You've also worked with, I mean, I know she and he was one, two of your best friends, and she still is, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, who are two of my favourite people, well, to watch. I didn't meet, I met Mike when we were doing My One and Only because he unofficially came Came in to help. help. Uh, yeah. he, he he was our doctor director, wasn't he? When we he were was. doing my one and only, and I I got to love him so much. He was the sweetest, most brilliant man, wasn't he? And then he darling Elaine, who is I I I didn't know her very well, but we got to know her a bit more through you. But you yes. were very close to both of them, or still are with Elaine, aren't you? I, I still am, and Elaine uh, had her birthday uh, Friday, and so she continues to amaze me with her brain and her talent and my golly. But I still represent Nichols and May on their CDs and on their f- film clips. Oh, do they you? Did, uh, they, they did a lot of television in the early days of the 50s and 60s. And the biggest shows in America, I don't know if they meant much in England, but it was uh, Dinah Shore and Jack Parr and Steve Allen. They might not mean that much. No, I, I got to know them because, you know, when the whole thing happened to me in the mid-60s, I spent quite a lot, lot of time in America. So I got, and I, you know, I went on Johnny Carson and I don't think I ever did Dinah Shore. I'm not sure she was still. She may not have been good. on the. Uh, no, this was late 60s by then. I don't think she was. But I I, I knew of the shows. And yes. actually it was, it was a show called The Gold Diggers of Broadway, I think. Gold, Gold Diggers of Broadway, that I saw Tommy Tune dance on. When we, we we were putting the boyfriend together with Ken Russell and Ken at that point, this is nineteen sixty-nine, he wouldn't fly and he wanted an American singer tap dancer. And I'd been in New York doing a modeling job or whatever, and I'd turned the telly on and seen this amazing tap dancer, this six foot six American Indian with the long hair and uh, well, half American Indian. So I told I told Ken about him, and he cast him. Yeah, into in he the did. He did, and I have to say that I produced the show uh, with Tommy uh, off Broadway, and uh, Tommy Tune White Tail and Tux, I think it was oh, called, yeah. and uh, it was a it was great. Uh, it was a wonderful show, but I never had the chance to do a show with Twiggy and Tommy. That would have been... I know. We, we we have talked over the years. It's probably too late now, but um, it would have been nice. But we did our we did my one and only, which... Oh, was... yes. And and that and you can still still see wonderful clips of that yeah. on, the, on the internet. I know. It's, it's great. great. It's well, great for, to see. for me to be given a chance to do... I mean, 
you know, Tommy gave me that chance. I say, I always say to him, I bet when you, because apparently, it, he, you know, he'd become this very famous director on Broadway, hadn't he? Yeah. Yes, and he apparently had. in the kind of, we did it in 83, so it must have been like in 82, his producer said, what do you want to do next? And he said, well, I want to get back as a performer and I wanted, I want Twiggy to star opposite me. And I said, did they all choke on their coffee? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was such an experience. Unbelievable. That was such an incredible thing for you to uh, have, first of all, jumped into. It's pretty daunting to, to all of a sudden decide to go to Broadway. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, you know, I always say to people, if you've got somebody as talented as Tommy Tune, as Mike Nichols, all backing you. And when I did the film with Ken, I'd never done a film before, but when you've got Ken Russell or Tommy or Mike all believing in you, it gives you the courage and the chutzpah to go out and think, well, if they th they think I can do it, yeah. maybe I can. And, you know, That's I right. learned so much and it was uh, the best experience in my professional life that I, that main, mainly because I didn't think I could do it. And, yes. uh, and I got, to, I grew to absolutely love and adore it. And you proved that you could do it. That's important <laughs> to point well, out, too, you know. Well, that's, well, I hope so. I hope so. I was there. I was I was cheering. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Now, you, you've you done a big musical. You did the Bullets Over Broadway with the Woody yes. Allen film that was yes. – did he turn it into a, a Broadway show? Did he do the book? Uh, he, oh, yes, absolutely. He did it uh, the book with a, a lovely guy and, uh, named Doug. Well, it was based on the the, um, the the movie, as you say, and he did the book. And he, he was um, he's wonderful to work with. Uh, he um, has a reputation of not talking to actors and not giving notes. And it's just not true in my experience. And I've done one, two, three, four uh, projects with him. I produced four of his projects, and he does. He gives notes. He talks. He doesn't direct them uh, often, but he does in, in the ones I've done with him. But he does give notes to the director, or with the uh, director's okay, he'll talk to an actor. So I don't know where that reputation comes from. Maybe when he's directing his movies, he's so sure of what he has that he doesn't do it. But I, I, it just makes no sense to hear that and i hear it a lot it's not in my experience in fact <clears throat> on the first play we did together i i had elaine may david mamet and woody all writing one acts i was quite oh, excited brilliant yeah and i and i actually i named the show they they wanted to call it three i said that's the worst title <laughs> three Yes, by Mamet, May, and Alan, you know. But I came up with the title Death Defying Acts. Every one of the three one acts had death in it. So I thought Death Defying Acts oh, might that's be. Pretty, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good title, actually. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good, too. Yeah. So, uh, I, Mer, as you know, Marin, Marin, my wife, uh, when I was trying to get a title around three in the morning one day, I got the title. And I woke her up. I said, Marin, Marin, what do you think of Death Defying Acts for the played she said it's a very good title darling you, you mind if i go back to sleep <laughs> yeah so. don't blame her three o'clock in the morning now the yeah. other the other thing um 
which is fascinating and I you know I can't wait to hopefully see it all is this was is it witnesses of the 20th century this yes. series of interviews explain what it is because it's fascinating yeah. and I'm also very happy to say that you and Lee saw a rough cut of a, a show and my mother is one of the many people involved and you turned around and you said that's your mother <laughs> <laughs> Oh, she looks so young. She oh. she really looks very young. I um, witnesses. I, I decided to try to get the most important people in front of the camera before it was too late to discuss the witnesses to the twentieth century. People who lived the century and and in many cases certainly experienced the most important events, but in many cases caused them or were part of them. And so I've got everyone from. President George H.W. Bush to uh, Bishop Tutu to Clint Eastwood to Quincy Jones. I mean, it's a very varied group. Uh, and we go from 1900 to 1999 in 14 hours and, and discuss every important event I could come up with. I couldn't believe that no one had done this, discuss the 20th century. And now that I've done it, I know why no one should do it. You should never do <laughs> it. A terrible mistake. But anyhow, I, I did do it. And uh, I, I, Elaine May is directing it and writing it. And I hosted and I did. Uh, and I also interviewed 140 people. Oh, it's my a big, goodness. A big library of uh, and each interview is about two hours long. I mean, they're really long. Mm. Obviously, we only take uh, segments from it. Yeah. But but it was nice. But this to, should end up in a, a library or something, shouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, because exactly. it, it's going to be a library. The, the Library of Congress wants it. Oh, and good. So, the Smithsonian. So one of them will get it. But right now I want to finish it. And uh, oh, I want to fin finish it before I'm finished. <laughs> now you've, got a, you've, you've still got your book to write. I do. And, <laughs> and the third book, I'm doing oh, the <laughs> But the third book is going to be the cut-down interviews of the witnesses. Oh, of, that's of, brilliant, yeah. So I think I know what I'm doing for the next couple of years. I think so, my goodness. So that means we're not going to get you across the pond to London, Londonium. <laughs> I don't think so, unless the BBC, upon hearing the show, says, we want your show, buddy, and then, of course, I'd fly over here. Okay. I, <laughs> Did you before, hear that, the BBC? <laughs> before you say goodnight. <laughs> yeah, before you say goodnight. Well, it, it should be shown because it's it's mammoth. And maybe that's their problem because it says so much of it. I suppose they it's quite hard to schedule. Although that amazing um, producer, director, Ken Burns, does very long, wonderful historical programmes, doesn't he? He does. He was my inspiration, actually. Oh. You know, he's at the, they're unbelievable, aren't they? Unbelievable. Yes, and you did say it's a mammoth production, but then I keep thinking, but the mammoths are extinct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, I'm going to let you go. Oh, I could, I, I mean, we I, could chat all day, but. Um, and we've been known to do that. We have. We have. Yeah. One thing I want to say, I, you've won so many awards I saw in your, I didn't, I mean, so many, you've won Tonys, Obies. Oh, what are Obies? Off-Broadway, right? Yes, Obies yeah, are off-Broadway. Drama Desk Awards. 
You should be wearing them like a hat. Oh, actually, when you come over next with Lee, I will put my hat on with all my awards. (laughs) They weigh me down. They just weigh me down. too heavy. Anyway, I love you lots, and thank you for talking to me. Such a pleasure. I think Tea with Twiggy, I wish we had it over here with you hosting it here. Well, everyone can get it all around the world. That's the good part. That's yeah, a that's the great thing of podcasts. You can listen to them all around the world. Well, I'm going to put it on Facebook and let them know that we did it together. Please do. And we'll talk to you soon. And I love you lots and lots. Bye, darling. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I love Julian. He he actually make, he, he should be a stand-up because he does make me laugh a lot. His stories are brilliant. And you can read about most of them in his book which I mentioned in our interview it's called Try Not To Hold It Against Me A Producer's Life by Julian Schlossberg do get it it's really fun and a great insight into the world of theatre the world of film I think you'll enjoy it anyway it was lovely to speak to him haven't seen him for a few years for obvious reasons and it was lovely to catch up anyway I hope you're all well and I'll see you soon If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production.